So I'm glad to hear that you were not interrupted at any of those points. You're about to get into the real fun stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Well, like I said, I fucking was digging it. But yeah, we'll, we'll plug that shit later. Um, well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Horror Vomit, where we talk about horror movies so you don't have to. My <laughs> name is Chris Pfaff, and I am your host. And today I am with a very special guest. Who are you, sir? Uh, hello. My name is Brad. Uh, Brad Havens, and uh, I'm an independent writer-producer. Uh, just uh, finished a radio play called Vice vs. Vampires. Hell yeah. The badge meets the bite. That's, that's <laughs> what we were kind of jabbering about at the beginning. <laughs> yes. but, uh Yeah. Yeah, I had a screenplay uh, that I'd been shopping around for literally years, and with this whole pandemic thing, I just basically hit on the idea of, well, you know, I know there are a lot of wait, voices. Wait, 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 pandemic? What are you talking about? It's not real. Yes, well, it's um, <laughs> the, the thoughtful events that allowed people to stay home longer than they expected. Um, kind of, uh, kind of, well... It literally, that's that's why I'm back in Michigan, is because uh, the whole in, entertainment industry shut down, yeah. and uh, I was furloughed long enough to um, have to get my ass out of California. Right. And um, so, in so doing, I came back to Michigan, I founded a company called Mountain Fire Media, and the whole idea with that is to push... Uh, these radio plays, audio books, and the other content that I've already produced. Hell yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, very cool. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, and a hell of a lot of fun. I met a lot of really good voiceover actors. And um, in terms of uh, staying creative and productive, it was the easiest thing to do because um, everybody basically can stay at home. And then once I got the master files from the performances, it just mixed everything together and uh, put it out there. Yeah. So, yeah, very pleased with the results uh, overall. And I'm hoping that um, we can find our audience for it. Hell yeah. yeah. And Brad, as the guest today, you yes. brought a film for us to discuss. Yes. Yes. It's uh, John Carpenter's original classic Never Will Die movie, The Fog. Hell yeah. Released in 1980, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, and yes. directed by John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. Starring Adrian Barbeau as Stevie Wayne. Her first first film. Was this her very first film? Yeah. She had done uh, some TV and voice work before this, but this was her first film. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I thought it was Jamie Lee Curtis's first film, though. No, she was in Halloween film? previous. Halloween came before the fog. Oh yeah, we're gonna go through it in a minute. Oh okay. Also, Excellent. also starring Jamie Lee Curtis as <laughs> Elizabeth Solly, Janet Lee, mm. as you might remember, as Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. Yes. As Kathy Williams, John Houseman as Mr. Machen, and Tom Atkins as Nick Castle. Yes. Uh huh. Nick, Nick Castle Nick. was the original Michael Myers from Halloween. That was the actor's name that played. Really? Yes, Michael Myers. Oh, that's great. 
I was thinking when I heard the name Nick Castle, it's such a manly man's name. <laughs> you know, it's perfect for the movies. That's so, cool. So he actually played Mike Myers in Halloween. No, uh, just the character's name. Tom oh, Atkins is the actor who plays the character Nick Castle. Right. And Nick Castle was the actor who originally played Michael Myers. Right. Yes. Right, right, right. <laughs> Excellent. So I want to start this off for a minute. Uh, we've done an episode about They Live, but we didn't really get into John Carpenter. Mm. And I don't think people really realize what a fucking genius he was. Oh, absolutely. So I just want to run through something real, real quick. Okay. Halloween, 1978. Okay. okay. Did a few things before, in between there. I know he did like a TV movie about Elvis, but mm-hmm. then we move on to The Fog in 1980. Mm-hmm. Escape from New York, 1981. Brilliant movie. The Thing, 1982. I mean, legend already. Christine, 1983. Hmm. I did not know he did Christine. That's okay. And that's a Stephen King, based on a Stephen King yes. book. Starman, 1984. Brilliant movie. Jeff Bridges, Karen Allen. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Soft spot in my heart for that movie. And then we take this long, long break for two years to make Big Trouble in Little China, 1986. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Guaranteed he spent uh, a lot of that time in pre-planning and stuff, too. So even though it seems like a gap, I'm sure he was he was working. Prince of Darkness, 1987. Hmm. Which one is that? And then They Live in 1988. <sighs> so that to me, is They Live is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just so wonderfully brilliant for its genre. It's, that is eight movies in the 1980s, and they were all good. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter is a fucking legend. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think he's an American treasure, and. Uh, I was so busy reacting to the titles, I missed the point until you said it, that he did all of that in that compressed period of time. Yeah. That's astonishing. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because Escape from New York just, again, stands on its own in terms of creating some sort of uh, iconic, futuristic world. Uh-huh. You know, it, he sets so many different benchmarks with each one of those movies. Christine is a very different visual movie. Absolutely. You know. And Starman and Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, yeah. those are not the movies that you think of when you think of the name John Carpenter. Like, <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Because he's so tied to Halloween and the other more straightforward horror movies. You yeah. Know? What was the name of the vampire movie that he did? Vampires. That's what it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bill Paxton is just terrifying in that movie. Yeah. You know, that whole bar scene... Where um, where uh, he just kind of goads the people into a fight and then it, it gets into this whole slaughter. Are we, is that the movie? I think you're thinking of Near Dark. Near Dark. Is that the, the one. one with Lance Henriksen? Yeah. Where it's basically the cast of Aliens? That's not John Carpenter's no, movie? No, 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 no. That was oh, an I'm HBO horribly room. embarrassed. I'm terribly sorry, John. No, John Carpenter's vampire was nowhere Which near as good as that. that? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> I always it was, that I think one it was John the, Carpenter though for some reason. I, I think his vampires was like the second to the last or third to last movie that he made. Oh okay. And he had a real slide at the end because it was like vampires, ghosts of Mars, and then the ward. Ghosts of Mars wasn't that bad though. Ghost of Mars was awful. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I like sci-fi junk movies, so 
you know. All right, so know. all right, we should probably get back into the fog <laughs> at some point. Yeah, let's get into some territory I am familiar with, <laughs> rather than just just rambling, <laughs> meandering on. mindlessly yeah. through John Carpenter works. Yes, sorry about that again, John. <laughs> I I, please I brought me. that on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the fog, brilliant movie. I actually I first saw it on HBO in like '82 or '83, something like that. Hell yeah, and um. And I was just fixated by the visuals and all of that. I thought it was... It's a very simple story. Oh, yeah. It's... You know. (laughs) You might like or love or hate this. Um, This is John Carpenter makes Scooby-Doo. Yeah. It's pretty much a Scooby-Doo episode. Kind of. And it's great. (laughs) Yeah. Uh I love it so much. Well... Uh, it's even more than Scooby-Doo because it is actual ghost story stuff as opposed to uh, unmasking uh, the bad guy who's trying to use ghosts to scare people and things like that, you know? That's, I think, one of the core things about Scooby-Doo, which was always fun, is you always have the, it would have worked if you <laughs> hadn't meddled, you know? That sort of thing. Yeah, I'm saying, it's, this is the, exactly, if John Carpenter... They went, hey, can you make us a, like a scary Scooby-Doo? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> well, it's got the whole mystery of the book yeah. and the, uh, you know, the revenge aspect of it. There's lots of really, really um, cool elements. And again, just visually, he made Fog actually, like, he was able to cinematically translate what's inherently spooky about Fog into the movies in a way that was effective. And that's really freaking hard to do. Yeah. I think, you know. So it, it was just, uh, it was fun to watch it again. I saw it again last Sunday. Uh, and um, I was surprised at how simple the whole story was. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of bones to this movie. I mean, there's nothing to really like not understand. It's a straightforward just fucking good murder, ghost, vampire, whatever zombie yeah. pirate story. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing is that you think that um, that um, they're pirates at the outset, but when um, when Hal Holbrook is reading the, um, the journal yeah. Right. And it comes out that, no, these people were lepers and they were trying to buy their way into a safe space near this city. Yeah. And they got betrayed and all of that. So you're not just seeing ghosts, but you're seeing ghosts of lepers, which is why their hands are all bandaged up and all of that. Even more than just they've been rotting in the ocean for a hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know. fucking so good. Yeah. So, this is one of the first things that I noticed when sitting down to watch this the other day. Yeah. I had, I had to hit the pause button to check the time code. The credits on this movie go on forever. Oh. The credits are on for, I think I wrote it down, approximately 12 minutes and 30 seconds of the beginning wow. of this movie. Holy They're still shit. running credits. Wow. That's impressive even for today's standards. Oh, yeah. You know, that's Marvel movie. <laughs> Time for credits. Huh. I don't know. I, I Honestly, I didn't pay that much attention to it because I just kept taking in the visuals of um, 
the world building that he was doing, setting up the coastline shots and uh, the town and all of that sort of stuff. So um, I didn't necessarily pay attention to those credits, but what uh, I did notice was the pace because there's not a lot of jump cuts. Nope. There's not a lot of like, even during action sequences, there's no, you know, uh, five edits on one sword swing kind of bullshit, you know? Yeah. It's, you're seeing what's happening. Hell yeah. And, um, and I just, uh, I love that. And it's unusual for a movie now to have such long shots unless it's like some sort of, uh, I don't know, British like, love story piece or something. You like know? long panning shots like they do in like It Follows and Hereditary mm-hmm. has a lot of that slow camera movement. But yeah. like, yeah. It, it's not the same as this. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, using the, the fog the way that they did, there were only two shots uh, in the movie that as I was watching it, I thought, okay, that's a manipulated shot. Like, um, this is the film run backwards. Yeah. Or, um... I believe it's uh, when the generator on the boat blows, I think was one of the real noticeable ones. Well, yeah, I kind of forgive that one, though, because they're um, out on the open ocean, you know? Um, the shot that uh, kind of caught my attention was more getting as we're getting closer to the lighthouse and we're on the road and uh, the fog had to be sort of funneled through this um, this um, relatively narrow space shall we say so you had like this convergence of the fog coming from these different angles in and into this space and there was just a moment where it was like, you know, it looks like they backed that film up. You know, they yeah. rewound that in that shot. Um, but again, that's so minor. Being so picky about what I'm seeing as someone, you know, looking at a movie that was done 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. And I, I do kind of forget that sometimes when I watch older movies is that, oh yeah, they just didn't have the shit to really do this back then. Yeah. Well, like when they're doing the night driving, you yeah, know, the camera mounts that they would have needed just to do that, you know, uh, it's it's a real chore back then compared to our lovely little digital mounts with GoPros and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, that are readily accessible now. So, and I mean, obviously, John Carpenter and whoever he hired for the effects team, mm-hmm. they really put the effort in on the thing. Mm-hmm. So like I mean, the effects that he uses in this film aren't bad. Like none of John Carpenter's effects are ever bad. Right. But I think he really, really nailed it with the thing because they worked on that for so fucking long. Like I wouldn't be surprised if they were kind of working on the thing on the well, side now, during this. Here's an interesting question: Do you know if John Carpenter worked with the same effects house or effects crew through all of his different movies? That I do not know for a definite, mm-hmm. but I think so because I mean, most directors, do, I mean, yeah, of that time anyway. Yeah, absolutely. They, they usually had to... their, I don't want to say friends, but you know, their real professional colleagues that. Mm-hmm. This is who I use for this. Yeah, and they would come up together with that kind of a business relationship. 
Um, the question, I guess, really comes down to, was he given a budget where he had to work with a certain effects house or something like that? I believe when I saw the budget for this, I think it was $1.1 million mm. in 1980. Mm-hmm. And then I did read that they spent three times that on a marketing budget. Oh, well, but, so again, very much like today then. Yeah. Interesting. That's that's <laughs> that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. Huh. But at the beginning of this film, I caught a... And I know this is precedes it by several years, but I got real maximum overdrive tones oh. from it. Well... <clears throat> again, you know, uh, the equipment that you have yeah. and how you get things done and how you shoot things, you know, those camera mounts. No, are... I, I mean in just the, like, all the electronics and everything going nuts, like the cars flipping on, the oh, payphones ringing. Right. I was just like, hmm, I know this precedes it by quite a while, but mm-hmm. <laughs> maximum overdrive. <laughs> well, um, honestly, I'm always kind of uh, strucken with or struck, stricken, strict, whatever, um, with uh, Close Encounters. Oh, hell yeah. Because you remember how there are several moments in Close Encounters, well, not several, but but at least two or three, where um, things are relatively quiet, and then abruptly all of the lights are going off, all of the kids' toys are running, and they shouldn't be, you know, but... Yeah. Uh, all of that crazy shit starts happening at once, and then almost as quick as uh, everything switched on, boom, it's all off, and then they're, you know, uh, they're just lights fading off into the clouds or whatever it is. You yeah. Know? Uh, so those those kinds of bursts and things. If I don't see a hand actually reaching in there, <laughs> you know, I'm always kind of because. I saw that in the theater, and so I'm always kind of imprinted with um, the effects from those early movies, you know. Like, Christopher Reeve, Superman, no one can touch. I'm sorry. I I get Henry Cavill is great casting, but in terms of the script and what they've done with Superman... Henry Cavill is too ripped and good looking to like <laughs> oh he put on a pair of glasses now he's, no he's still fucking henry cavill yeah uh-huh <laughs> yeah and actually i'm glad that you said that because one of the best uh scenes that really shows who superman slash clark kent is is that moment where he's gonna tell lois who he is and then he decides not to so there's this moment where even though he's dressed as Clark, he takes off his glasses. This is the Christopher Reed movie, obviously. Takes off his glasses and he's like, Lois, I have something to tell you. And yeah, his <laughs> chest puffs out and he straightens up and suddenly he's Superman in, in, in a suit, right? And then while she's off getting her clothes or whatever she's doing and she starts coming back, he chickens out and he completely deflates and puts on his glasses and changes into this more meek tone and now he's Clark Kent. So you can totally buy this physical transition, you know, yeah. that it was there in the performance. But you're right, Henry Cavill is so fucking beefcake <laughs> that he can't melt like that. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Should I we, still think should we get back should we get back to the fog? <laughs> yeah, so the fog. So this is just an an excellent example of taking a uh, a classic, and they open with John Houseman telling the story, 
which is so wonderful. John Houseman, this older sea shanty sort of man telling these kids ghost stories on the beach. And Who is leaving their kids alone with this old grizzled fucking sea captain? Well, you know, small town community. He's probably been known for years and all of that sort of thing. It's one of the endearing things about a small town community that you just don't see these days anymore, Chris. <laughs> one of my absolute favorite scenes in this film is... It's not long after this. It's, it's right near the beginning... Mm. <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis, at, I think 22 years old, hitches a ride from 45-year-old Tom Atkins. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then, like, all the windows blow out, some weird shit happens. In the next scene, or in the next sequence, they are just laying in bed. Uh-huh. So, uh, you're markedly older than I am. Was, <laughs> was, was Tom Thank Atkins you. a sex symbol in the 80s? Because... He fucks everything that moves in Halloween 3 as well. well and he is not a classically good-looking man. No. <laughs> but that's kind of the point of casting him. Is because there actually was... Um, the everyman sort of uh, hero. Who was deliberately, intentionally supposed to be a blue-collar type of representative... Right? So... That was constantly fucking girls 20 years younger than him. Well, here's the thing, is that... Um, I love Tom Atkins. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> but you also got to bear in mind that this is, you know, John Carpenter writing these scenes for him. So there's a certain sort of um, living vicariously through your characters taking place there as well, I think. You know? So, um, so ultimately, Tom Atkins... Uh, betting Jamie Lee Curtis, I actually really like the dialogue scene when uh, he picks her up. Because she's like, oh, this is my first time doing this. You're not a freak, are you? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, she says, are you weird? He says, yeah, I'm weird. Like, <laughs> our hands are an already open beer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she drinks from it. Oh, fuck yeah. So it's like, okay, well, this is, we're already in an unusual <laughs> situation yeah you know? and she, uh, so he says yeah and we're and she responds with good the last guy i rode with wasn't weird at all which is why that scene is so interesting because he immediately busts her for lying to him exactly and he's cool with it doesn't give her any shit about it you know takes the joke that she gives which is still because well, he is sexual dynamo tom atkins and he knows he's getting in there dude by the end of that scene <laughs> she's already hinting that hey you're gonna get lucky tonight and he's like okay cool if that's what you want to do baby you know and it's just it's just uh a kind of machismo that you don't really see you certainly don't see in like a blockbuster hollywood movie yeah you know you just don't but um but that would be my answer, is he, he represented an everyman kind of hero that, um, that was intended to be more relatable, you know. So leading into the next sequence when they are, when they are laying in bed together, mm -hmm. and this is, I think, the, one of the first instances that I noticed this. These are very polite zombie leper ghosts. Yeah. They uh -huh. always knock. Yeah, because they're not. <laughs> it's great. And... It's it's uh, usually like a pane of glass on a door yeah. or something like that. So you know they could just push right through it. Yeah. 
and get in there. But no, they're and they they do a couple times. Uh huh. But, but only they, after. Yeah, they, they knock first. Yes. Uh huh. Which is fantastic. It's because hilarious. they're from what the eighteen eighties. You knock. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs> and if they don't answer, you bust through the door with your hook hand. Well, they were well brought up lepers. And they had their manners and school training and things like that. And, you know, sailors, but gentlemen as well. Should we talk about the <laughs> first three murders in this? The well, boat scene with George Buck Flowers, who I'm always happy to see. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is he now? Which one is he? Oh, he is... He's also in They Live. Um, he is... Have you ever seen Wishmaster? No. Oh, he's the bum outside in Wishmaster. He's one of the guys on the boats. He's one of the big, fat, drunk dudes. Oh, okay. All right, cool. Because there's that uh, slightly scrawnier guy with the glasses who I've seen in a bunch of stuff from that time frame, but then never again in anything else. So, you know, the guy who gets his eyes punched out. Yes. <laughs> oh, which is bitching. <laughs> it's, it's cut together so well, and honestly, you never see the spikes go in the eyes. Yeah. Which just shows... How fucking fantastic a filmmaker he was, because that is like a traumatizing scene. Yeah, you know, it uh, is. they were pushing for a PG rating for this movie. Oh, were and they? they got an R. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, understandably so. There's still some stuff in there that um, that even by today's standards is like, wow, holy shit, that's that's a bit rough. And I think my favorite part of that entire scene is the guy when they hear about. Oh, there's a fog bank coming, and he's staring out the porthole in the middle. There's no fog bank. There's no fog bank. Oh, hey, there's a fog bank. There's a fog <laughs> bank. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I love the, that dude's timing is fucking perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Hits the rule of three nicely. But, oh, you know what? That does bring up another thing, which is the, um, the soundtrack. Right? Because John Carpenter did his own music for oh. most of his movies. Yeah. And it is, uh, for as diverse as his movies are, his soundtrack is almost signature. Yeah. You know that's John Carpenter, uh -huh. you know, doing that music. And uh, just the way uh, it sort of starts to, like, I'm certain The Fog has its own theme, and I'm just speaking out of ignorance right now, but the way that... It suddenly breaks over the horizon, and the music sort of brings you into oh, it's it's about to get heavy, children. You know. Yes. I just man, the guy was remains a cinematic genius with how he structured everything that he was doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this as an early work, his second movie. When you look at how simple third. Or a third movie, sorry. I believe uh, Before Halloween was, was it, uh, Precinct 13, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Ah, uh, yeah, and that's a great movie. That Have is a fucking that? killer movie. Oh, man. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. But so for his third movie, then. Yeah, his third cinematic release, I believe, because I think there was a short, and then, like I said, I think he did a TV movie about Elvis. Like, right before The Fog. Oh, okay. Well, I know nothing about that one. Um, but just seeing the amount of skill that's demonstrated with such a, a very 
uh, simple script. Yeah. You know, I mean, in a way, I kind of think maybe the long takes were sort of necessary to help you draw out some of the scenes, but he doesn't do anything that seems like a waste of time. Yeah. In any way. You know, it's it's a beautifully shot movie. It's well paced, even if it's a slow paced movie. That is that is one thing that I was noticing while watching it was just like I actually think that overall I do think Halloween's a better movie, but I think this is paced a little better. Mm-hmm. Because Halloween is mostly kind of slow. I mean, even by the standards of then. I mean, I think he learned a lot from that and I think this movie is it. It keeps a better pace than Halloween does throughout. Well, yes. Uh, Halloween I, has higher highs and lower lows, I guess, I guess I should say. Well, the other thing about Halloween is that Mike Myers is essentially an unstoppable force. Yes. You know, no matter how she, how many times she fights him, even when he falls out that window and is mm-hmm. supposed to be dead, that body disappears. Where, where the fuck did Mike Myers go? Yeah. You know? Um, with this, he lays out the rules when, uh, the priest finds the book, right? Yep. So six people betrayed him, six people have to die. And it's a little confusing. I mean, if you really think about it, it's a little confusing because the three people on the boat appear to be relatively random. But by the end of the movie, Hal Holbrook's saying, I'm a descendant of the priest, so I'm responsible, so, you know, take my blood. So is it six people who are related, or just six people in general? I read a short trivia blurb about this. Oh, cool. I forget the guy's name, but there's a guy who also did a novelization for Halloween, and he did a novelization of The Fog. And in that, he explained that all six of the people that had to die had to be descendants of the original murderers. Oh, okay. So, so the it three cleared on the it boat up. happened to be descendants. Yes. Of the original one. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Well, good. Yeah. And after, after reading that, I was like, oh, yeah, that does make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it. he doesn't leave it really open for interpretation because they do say six must die. And then in that bitchin' fucking wooden plank scene yeah. in the. Uh, lighthouse. In her radio uh, station <laughs> yeah, her, office. Her yeah. radio lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, brilliant concept. You also know. does not have an antenna sticking out of it. <laughs> well, there are a lot of problems with that because <laughs> the they show the tower is out on this sort of, um, what, escarpment surrounded by rocks. Yes. So where is the radio signal going to go to Yeah, with from? like... I believe it was 300 stairs leading down to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's all, all of that water, all of that moisture splashing around. So God knows if you had any sort of electronic equipment or antennas or, you know, outlying um, uh, distribution boxes or things like that. That's all <laughs> subject to that horrific weather yes. out there. You know, it's like the worst place you could have a radio station <laughs> possible. But it did get me to thinking that he probably, as part of his um, original concept designs and all of this sort of stuff, he probably literally was like, I know a guy who's got a lighthouse, I can get into a church, and, you know, um, we can do these other sort of beautiful things 
uh, with landscapes and visuals and things like that. Boom, the fog. Yeah. You know? So he kind of like had his locations and then built a script around the locations, you know? But I do want to talk about the effect with that plank of wood. Oh, yeah, yeah. holy shit is that cool. Well, now which part? The part with the water coming yes. up through the... Yes. Uh-huh. Now, any insight on how he did that? Uh, no. Okay. That's kind of one of those, like, I don't want to know how Chinese food is made because it's really uh, good, and if I can make it myself, it's not as special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that kind of shit I kind of skip over sometimes because, like, mm. you know what? I don't want to know. It's just... Good on you, John Carpenter. That ruled. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, uh, I could hazard a guess, but uh, <laughs> I like your response better, so let's not get into it. But yeah, uh, Adrian Barbeau's son finds like a plank of wood that he brings her earlier that day that says Dane on it. Yes. And uh, she brings it to the studio with her, and she has it sitting on top of a stack of cassettes. Right. Now, the sun finds the plank of wood, though, because it's a glimmer of a gold doubloon that catches his attention. Yes. And the doubloon turns into this plank of wood. Yeah. Yeah. Which and, is really cool. Yep. And uh, Sorry, there is there, no, there is a side story with uh, Tom Atkins oh. where he explains where his father found that piece of gold that he hid in his pocket. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. Uh-huh. Well, because this is supposed to happen every hundred years. Well, I mean, so, okay, whoops. it's 1880. <laughs> it's 1880. The movie is 1980, so they cleverly tied that in with the hundred years. Get good on you for that. But here's this old man telling these children about this curse of these people who were betrayed a hundred years ago. But then again, if they were betrayed a hundred years ago, this would be the first time they were ever coming back. So that means really you wouldn't know about the curse necessarily unless they had already sort of come back or you'd had some sort of confirmation of it to begin with. Right, but what I'm saying is that Tom Atkins' father wouldn't have been old enough to have found this cursed object <laughs> because there's no way there's a hundred years between Tom Atkins and his father. It's just a stupid little plot hole I found. Anyway, but Well, yeah. now I'm confused, though, because I remember Tom Adkins saying that his father had found the coin, put it in his pocket, and walked away. And then when he went to give it to his kid, yeah, the coin was gone. Yeah. So... If this curse is only enacted every hundred years, though, how would he have found a ghost coin? Ah, yes, indeed. Like I said, it's just it a stupid. Be like it's a an stupid actual doubloon that fell off the ship. Yeah, yeah it's just totally a stupid right. plot hole that I noticed. Yeah. yeah. So again, if you go and actually really start trying to think about the script, yeah, you can punch holes all the way through it. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to. Still, that was just one that really stuck out to me. Yeah. I was just like, hey, 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 wait a minute! <laughs> you yeah. just broke your own rules, John Carpenter. Yeah, uh, and that that was my thing with the old man story is he says, they come every hundred years. And I was like, oh, well, hold on a second. This You're like be, 65. This <laughs> would be the first hundred years that they would be coming. How would you know that they would, you know, th yeah. it's it's strange, you know. But, but then but anyway, I, I wanted Barbeau to get, gets trapped on the very top of the lighthouse. Hold on, I wanted to get back okay. to the wood effect. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she has the chunk of wood that says Dane on it. And she turns around and it starts leaking water, water out of it everywhere, all over mm -hmm. this stack of cassettes. And then all of a sudden it says six must die on it. 
Yeah. And bursts into flames. Yeah. Uh huh. It's fucking awesome. It's wicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially because the water kind of starts coming from the actual letters yes. of the Dane itself. So it's not just like, like um, you know, there's some um, water hose that starts up in a corner and douses the whole thing. And it's specific points of letters uh-huh. where the water just starts to seep up and flow and flow down all over the inside of that office. Yeah, it's really great. That's one that I want to know how they did. I don't want to know, but I do. I uh-huh. <laughs> it's, well, it's fucking great. Yeah, there's there's a couple of ways. Um, but you know what? I bet you if you went on Fangoria that uh, they would have the solution from how he actually did it. Because Fangoria was just beautiful in uh, teaching fans how the effects were actually done, you know. So they'd had they probably had a whole segment on the fog and and all of that. I wouldn't be surprised anyway. Um, yeah, it's a great effect. And then so the fire is surrounding this thing, and then the words change. Uh, why would the ghost do that to Adrian Barbeau? I don't get that one. Is it just I because did. it was a plank of wood? Or I mean, their wood, and I don't she was know in the radio it station. Did it to her specifically? I don't know why it would have happened. Uh huh. Because she wasn't a descendant, right? She was just no. basically one of those sort of casual, caught up in everything. Yes. Uh huh. Which I guess then doesn't make sense that she was stabbed at the end. Either. Mm. We're skipping a lot, though. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Don't want to skip too much. Sorry about that. But, so. Um, there's the three on the boat, and then we... Oh, shit, we haven't even talked about the weather, man. <laughs> that fucking creep. <laughs> well, you know, and here's the thing about him is... Uh, uh, not terribly surprising for the time. No. You know? An aggressive male... Mm-hmm. Uh, is that even a co-worker, or is that somebody that she Well, technically like... it would be a co-worker, yeah. <laughs> but the way that the radio stations are set up, I mean, you notice she's isolated in her office, and they're just working off of network feeds and satellite feeds or whatever that yeah. they had going at the and time. And telephone calls to the weatherman. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Which, Which is funny, because she runs a weather station and doesn't have... She has to call a dude. <laughs> well, uh... Okay, that's because he's basically the head of the local um, weather uh, department. I mean, he's like um, he's like oh, a, like the uh, National Weather Service. Yeah, exactly. He's like a hub for the information. So yeah. she's got her instruments, but uh, like he's the one giving her the heads up that the fog is moving at all in the in the very beginning, right? And so yeah. when she throws out the um, the warning to the boat saying hey look out for the fog that's coming there she's gets that information from the weather guy so the weather guy himself even though he's you know um a bit of a piece of shit (laughs) (laughs) oh he's basically feeding her information to um to uh share with the maritime business and the people who are out um on the boats and things like that it does make me very happy that the weatherman is the next to get it. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because he tries to play really macho. Like he walks... 
or he gets the call from Adrian Barbeau and he kind of doesn't believe her. Mm-hmm. And there's the knocking at the door again. And mm-hmm. <laughs> well, whoever's here is going to really regret messing with me, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> then again, the way they take him out, don't they just snatch him in the door frame? Like he turns his back on him and then they snatch him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so it was like... He comes out, he's a tough guy, and they're like, uh-oh, he, he's a tough guy, hold on. Oh, now he turned his back, now let's get him. You know? Got him. Yeah, exactly. It, it, man, the the sound that they use, you know, that wing, when yeah. uh, the arm comes out and over and just pulls him back. And Hell yeah. Fog. Oh, man. It's such... It's, so it seems so simple, but man, it's iconic. You know? Hell yeah, yeah, great so, stuff. This is about where I actually stopped taking notes because I just really wanted to watch it. Like, well, I've done this a few times. Like, I I don't keep on like strict notes, but there's some movies where I just put the pen down. And I just go, you know what? I'm just gonna watch this fucking thing. Well, now, re- yeah, because. Um, I was going to say, wasn't there a point where one of these guys, it's the guy on the boat where they find the body and he falls on Tom Atkins, right? Oh, he falls on Jamie Lee. Falls on Jamie Lee. Yeah, and because Tom... And he the ground and he carves the three into the bottom of the boat. Yeah, right? it's the right? dead man who died... He got his eyes punched out. Yeah, like, he yeah. died the night before, but the coroner is saying that, no, this man has been underwater for, At like, least weeks. Yeah. Yeah. But I saw him three days ago. None of this makes any sense. So they exit the room and leave Jamie Lee Curtis in the room yeah, uh, with a with dead, dead body. body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I laughed which, out loud when which, I saw that. Which, why were the two of them at the yeah. fucking autopsy anyway? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, excellent point. Why was Tom actually there at the autopsy? I mean, I get that he's a friend and all of that, but actually there while the autopsy's being recorded? Yeah. That that was a bit bizarre, but anyway. It's great this bit, movie's though. great. Well, and Jamie Lee Curtis can scream her ass off. I mean, when that body fell on her, I believed her. I was terrified. Yeah. Poor woman, you know? But so... Here's what I was getting to, though, is the the uh, uh, ghoul of this body, whatever it is, carves this three into the floor, driving forward the uh, legend yes. of six people must die. Yes. So now we actually have sort of a ticking clock in the movie, as well as the one-hour curfew of the, of the evil time, you know, after one in the morning all of the mystical power goes away. So they've got one hour to get six people over this this period of time that's in this movie. And the first three that they get are on the boat. Yeah, and then they get the weatherman. And then they get the weatherman. And then the next is Mrs... What's her name? Mrs. Koblitz? Yes, Miss Koblitz. <laughs> Excellent memory. Good for you. Yeah, hell yeah. Miss Koblitz. Miss <laughs> Koblitz is great. <laughs> Yeah, and you can tell. I mean, she's... The first thing that she walks in, Andy, the telephone is ringing! (laughs) (laughs) I love Mrs. Koblitz. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's a shame that she had to die. That's a bitch. (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. She really cared about the kid, and uh, 
did her best to try and, you know, keep him out of harm's way. Yeah, because the power goes out and he's asking her, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And she's, oh, somebody, they usually fix it pretty quickly. Yeah, she's lighting and candles. Then, and and, and then there's fine. the uh, usual polite knocking at the door yes, of uh-huh. the monsters. And the fog rolls in, and she tells him, go to your room. And But I want to see. Yeah, shoo, go. <laughs> yeah, she objects and just tells him, boy, get in your room, yeah. essentially. <laughs> and the second that he closes the door, she gets ripped through yeah, it and murdered. The, yeah, the very second. Thank God he turned away when he did. Otherwise, he would have seen all of that. But I'm sure he heard it, and then... Luckily, not ten seconds or so later, yeah. Tom Atkins is at the window. Yes. How how does he know that well, that's because, the place uh, to go? Adrian Barbo is sending out the radio signal. Please go to this address. My son is in trouble. My son is in trouble. Well, yeah, but I mean, so you show up to the house and you know to go to the bedroom window where this think... kid is hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <I guess> you're <laughs> right. <laughs> But he, he elbows through the window and then drags this kid out of a yeah. window full of broken glass. Come on, come on! <laughs> that, that also, this child doesn't know that this is not the person trying to kill him. That's an excellent He didn't point. see anything. Because he'd never met Tom before. Right? No! Ah. It's That's insane. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And then any reasonable kid might have shit themselves in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and not just said said, "Hey strange man that just broke my window out. I'm going to immediately run toward you." <laughs> yeah. This movie's awesome. Yeah. And he hadn't seen the lepers either, so to him it could have been regular people at the door, anything. Yeah. Could have been anything. Yeah. Could have been the dude that just slammed his elbow through your window. Come on, kid. Come on. So essentially in this scene, Tom Atkins abducts a child. Literally. <laughs> wow. To the best of that child's knowledge, he has just been stolen. Wow. That is hilarious. Because he wouldn't have heard his mom no. on the radio no. calling for somebody to help him. No. Because everything was shut down at the house. So, no way of knowing that... Oh, man, that is so (laughs) fucking funny. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. But, you know, Tom Atkins is, once again, your blue-collar everyman, so you trust him automatically. Leap into his arms like a (laughs) dawn, like a fall of... uh, Baby deer, <laughs> a fawn, <laughs> saying, save me, Tom, save me. Save me, Tom Atkins, save me. Uh, so, and then there's Jamie Lee Curtis, so you know you're okay after you see her. Yeah, and they're trying to get out of that driveway, and nothing's happening, and all of a sudden he just says, we'll throw it in reverse, and then they drive in reverse for yeah. like a yeah. quarter mile. Like, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Because she it it does look like she is trying to rock the truck by going back and forth. I mean, you see her switching gears yeah. several times. So you kind of get the idea that oh, she's trying to rock it, you know. Yeah. But then somehow, magically, him saying, throw it in reverse, <laughs> gives it the, uh, 
you know, the last little push that it needs. <laughs> That's the power of Tom Atkins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Boom. You want that truck out of there? You need Tom yelling at you. So she slams it in reverse. It works. And she runs over a bunch of ghost lepers. <laughs> so have we reached the point in the film where Adrian Barbeau from her clearly not up on a hill broadcast station uh-huh. tracks the fog throughout the exact streets in the film? Oh, man. That's one of my favorite moments. I love it. She's like, oh, it's going up 12th and now it's at Atticon's Court. You know, because there are all of these quaint names for the roads yeah. that let you know, oh, this is a small town. It's a quaint small town. You know, everybody knows everybody in this town. She can tell you exactly where the fog is going because the town is so small and quaint and lovely. It's a great bit, man. And it also kind of gives you an idea of um, how big the town actually is, how screwed they actually are because the fog is covering so much territory. Yeah. yeah. So. So she keeps then telling again, them. that's an awful lot of lepers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spreading out across the town like that. <laughs> and if they only needed six bodies. Yeah. Shit. Wow. And that's they were all ga- And they were all gathered at that one party in the middle of town. Yeah, that's They could have had their fucking pick. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's just bad planning on their part. This movie's ridiculous. <laughs> so, long story short, they Adrian Barbeau from her tower mm-hmm. is saying, go to the church, go to the church, go to the church. Yeah. In Which the middle is, of town. For, for whatever reason, is the one place that the fog is not going, and then the minute everybody goes to the church, that's exactly where the fog goes. Well, not everybody. So, specifically, like... Well, six I'll, people <laughs> go well, to the church. Every one of the heroes that we care about. Yes. <laughs> every actual cast member of this yes, movie. Uh-huh. Every cast member. I'm not talking about the extras or the, you know, the locals who showed up for the outdoor scenes and things like that. No. The main cast all shows up at the church and uh and the now, priest is shit-faced. One of my favorite parts. <laughs> He's completely hammered. He's like, okay, well, if it's going to be my time, I'm going to be trashed. Yeah. And they convince him to get it together well enough to, you know, share with them the journal and what's going on. Yeah, because Tom Atkins breaks his bottle. Yeah, which is funny. Yeah. You know. It's like, you've had enough of this and just smashes it. I almost wanted... To hear Hal Holbrook in the background somewhere just going, no. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Something. Just something. But he kind of, you know, he rolls with it and all of that. And he shares his information. And this is what I thought was funny is they start digging at the wall more. Oh, this is after they all run into the study because they all run into a side room for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, there's this weird sort of, we're getting surrounded, so we're going to run and try and figure out a safe spot. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the the um, ghosts aren't having any of that. They're <laughs> no. just finding ways to... This is the other cool thing, though, is even when you see the fog seeping under the cracks in the doors, the way they lit it, the way that they actually shot it, you buy it. 
Yeah. You're not sitting there going, oh, well, clearly it was a one quarter speed and reversed with an F-16, you know, gate on the whoever gives a fuck. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> come on, man. It's It looks good. It sells. And it was a practical effect. There's no CGI. There's nothing, you know, other than what they were able to produce on that day. That alone sets Carpenter apart in terms of filmmaking, as far as I'm, con- I'm concerned. <laughs> here's, here's one of my other favorite parts of the film, because it is baffling. Go. The priest leaves his journal, like, in the other room. Because they all run into the study. He left it, like, on a pew. Yeah. Uh, they send Tom Atkins to go get it. Yes. Which is fine. Hero every man, yes. <laughs> Simultaneously, Janet Lee, the oldest woman in the room, and the priest, the oldest drunkest man in the room, are digging out this gigantic golden cross yeah. out of the fucking walls. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. Why? How did they suddenly become inspired? Those to two do that? geriatric <laughs> motherfuckers are digging a twelve hundred pound gold cross out of a wall. But you notice it's so good. It it kinda had to be them because they were the only two who were really kind of understanding what this whole history of the town and the curse and what they were actually trying to do there you know right it's like everybody else is going oh ghosts oh fuck and running around and trying not well, to get and also up and these two were like oh man you know what let's see what else is behind this wall you but know? also i mean they they do show it in the book beforehand where they kind of explain that they melted down yeah, all the gold. Uh-huh. So yeah. I, I didn't mean to just jump to something funny, but like, well, how Holbrook at, well, says at this specifically, I stopped reading after that and you're like, man, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, whatever the solution is to this problem is where you need to keep reading. You know, he it picked it up like four days ago and then just drank ever since yeah, and never exactly. finished it and never finished it. Right. And then <laughs> and then he's like, oh, well, yeah. OK, so let's take a look at what it says. Oh, the solution to our problems is right here on page three. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's. It's one of my favorite bits in the whole thing, you know? So, of course, so they dig out this gold cross that has to weigh, I mean, just, what, 300 pounds? Because it's just smelted gold into this thing. 300? That's an enormous gold cross. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. 300? That's probably like a thousand pounds. Each one of those, if you separate it into a gold ingot, has got to be, what, 60, 70 pounds? Something like that? Probably. So I'm just thinking like... I mean, he's got it on his arms like David Carradine at the beginning of fucking... It's his baby. I love it. Oh, like David Carradine at the beginning of the Kung Fu show where he just like pick up the pot with his arms. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just struggling to no carry shit. it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I almost felt bad for him in that moment. I was like, I wonder how many takes it took for him to wrestle that motherfucker <laughs> out of there. You know? And did Carpenter give him any sort of breaks in between or anything like that? You know? But, uh, 
But he, they wrestle out, and again, okay, remember what I was saying about locations where he was like, okay, we've got a church, we got this. I bet one of the things on his list is we've got this ridiculous smooth gold cross. <laughs> what can we do with this? We'll make this part of the whole ghost story somehow, you know? <laughs> Who gives a because shit? It'll just, be fun. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a bizarre prop to have in this movie. You know, but, he smelts the gold, all of the stolen gold, into this uh, gigantic cross, blank cross. Too. Yeah, there's nothing on it. There's no ornamentation. No, it is you know? generic as shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. So it's like, okay, well, huh? <laughs> you know what? What are we getting from that? You know, it's just kind of weird to me. Well, what's weird to me too is the what happen well because he's carrying this cross yeah all the fucking zombie pirate or lepers or whatever yeah. show up yeah and there's blake with his glowing red eyes yeah uh-huh yeah. and he touches this cross and starts like an electrical conduction some there's... sort of uh spiritual convergence of energy where the blake the leader of the exhibition is reunited with his stolen gold and the power of his lust being fulfilled while the gold itself is reabsorbed back to its rightful owner creates this massive electric blue light that any disco would have been proud of at the time. <laughs> and Hal Holbrook somehow is not destroyed oh because tom atkins pulls him off right because tom atkins our blue collar hero saves <laughs> yeah uh-huh that's right that happens tom atkins pussy hound galore <laughs> <laughs> mad dog tom <laughs> yeah uh-huh he runs in he saves the priests my God, <laughs> there is no way that I can't now somehow try and get a hold of Tom Atkins. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he probably would uh, do an interview. Absolutely. Tom you know, Atkins galore. Yeah, fucking A. Well, I'll tell you something else about him is I realized um, he's in Lethal Weapon, the first Lethal Weapon. Yes, he is. He is a... Uh... The guy who informs Murtaugh Mur that uh, his daughter has been tossed off the, or uh, had gotten involved in all of that sleazy stuff. Yeah, uh, it starts with an H. Heinricher or Heidricher? Oh, fuck. Um, There's no way either of us are going to ever think of this. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Just saw this the other day. Um, but uh, his daughter... Heidecker? No, we're not doing <laughs> All right. So, either way, um, all the while, while that whole scene is happening, Adrian Barbeau is climbing up to the roof of her. Now, I tell you, this is a pet peeve of mine. I don't care what genre of movie it is. Why do you always climb up to the highest, most limited, most precarious position you can possibly find knowing you're going to be trapped there's nothing you can do there's no 
So she climbs but, to the very top of the lighthouse, knowing but, these things are coming after her. But, but, this uh-huh. is where I love where John Carpenter subverts that. Huh. Because she climbs up to the top of that, and she sees the monster climbing up the ladder. Uh-huh. However, the monster that gets her just comes from behind. Yeah. It it's shows up. up there. Yeah. It's already up there. Yeah. 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 Um... <clears throat> Um, I I just love how he subverts that. Oh, she runs to the okay, highest dude, point, and don't, she is. Uh, don't uh, say subverts, because that has such a such a terrible contemporary usage, uh, bastardization. Thanks to our dear Ryan Johnson and uh, the application of uh, denying the horrible quality of your movie by saying, I subverted your expectations. Uh, personal pet peeve of mine. Let me uh, go ahead and say that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that um, that uh, John Carpenter, instead of subverting anything, actually brought in um, a, a take that made a lot of sense, which is that these motherfuckers are ghosts, and if they want to be on top of the lighthouse to capture Adrian Barbo, well, guess what? They don't need to explain how they climbed up there to yes. get her. Yes. Boom. There they are. They're fucking ghosts. <laughs> Maybe they're polite and they knock, but they show up with weapons so that they can gut you and, and poke your eyes out and do all these horrible things to you. And here's what I also like about that sequence. That is the only time that we actually see a monster in this movie. Yeah. And it's green and gross and covered in maggots. Yeah. And it's a very good effect, whether it be for one or two seconds or not. That maggot effect was traumatizing. It is disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And it's not hidden by fog. No, and you know? I love that that's the yeah. only time that he gives us that. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, again, a fine demonstration of uh, of understanding the genre, understanding that the audience doesn't need a lot because the audience will fill in those blanks for you, too. If you just give them enough to let their imagination run wild, you know, you tell your good story, then they're there. They're filling in those blanks. You don't have to have a lot of exposition about who or why or things like that as long as your story is engaging. And and that's what he does. He sets us up with the old man. Then he gives us the place that where it's actually happening. Then he gives us the clues that, no, this is really happening and the people have to figure out what catch up to the game, you know? Yeah. And then there are players within this who know the legend and are trying to actively defend themselves, you know? Yes. So and actually this is something that I kinda wanna talk about when we get done, but mm. so pretty much the ending to this movie is mm. the monsters disappear. Yeah, Adrian the, Burpo is trapped on top of the lighthouse. The um Main uh, players Blake. are in the church. Yep, Blake. And Hal Holbrook confronts Blake, gives him the cross, and in that moment of giving him the cross, uh, they all disappear, essentially. Right. right. Okay, so they all disappear. The fog starts to recede. Yes. So, then... Adrian Barbeau is fine. 
And then we're left with the last shot of the priest turning around to the entire yeah. undead army there yeah. and stabbed to the chest and done. Yeah. Roll uh, credits. Right after, yeah, he says, uh, do you remember what his last line is? Why did, why not me? Or something like that? Um, I, I'm the sixth perpetrator or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, so he's wait, actually no, questioning. You're no, you're not. Why did you they there. kill me? <laughs> well, considering you know, this yeah. is another thing about the again. The, I know, I understand. Like that was his lineage, but like, I was the sixth conspirator. Like, yeah. Wait, no, you weren't. I should have well, died. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. then he does. Well, you and know, it's great. <laughs> as as a proper priest should do, he assumes the guilt of the guilty party. And bears that burden so that he can later absolve himself or be absolved. I don't know. I'm just making that up. <laughs> so, um, so Blake and, shows and, up, and also, him. also, if they're Catholics, he wouldn't have been the grandson of anyone, any priest. Yes, yeah, true. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very but true. Anyway. Very true. So, God bless America and their liberal religion. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, um, this is what I wanted to, yeah, yes. go ahead, go, go. No, I say, cause we pretty much reached the end of the movie and yeah. this is one of the things that you were talking about that I really like that I kind of am turned off by, by some modern cinema mm. is the amount of exposition that people feel that they need to give these days Yeah, mm-hmm. because some of the better horror movies that I've seen don't give you the reasons. And yeah. I think in horror, that's fine. Oh, absolutely. You don't need the I reasons. Actually, I prefer that in most narrative movies. You know, I like... Um, and narrative stories in general. I like, here is your hero. Here's what you need to know about them. Here's the challenge that they're going to be facing. And uh, on the other side of that challenge, this is the expectation of what the, you know, resolution to the whole thing is going to be, right? And then, so the question of whether or not they make it, to what degree do they succeed, all of that stuff, that becomes your story and the journey and all of that. Yes. You know, totally cool with that. And that's what we have in The Fog is they introduce, oh, there was a curse. There were these people who were betrayed. Hal Holbrook fills in the blanks of the old man's ghost story to the children, right? Yeah. And we get this information relatively early on, so when the freaky stuff starts happening, it doesn't surprise us as an audience in, like, what the fuck is going on? It surprises us because it's legitimately, these ghosts are doing some, some scary shit. You know, that whole first sequence where they overtake the boat is is genuinely scary. Yeah. You know, it's great stuff. But what I love, and especially about this era of film, you know, like the early 80s through, I think, about the 90s, mm. was they didn't show you and then later tell you. Mm-hmm. Because that's yeah. something that really bothers me about modern horror movies, especially, is like watching as many of them as I do, I really don't like when they show me a sequence and then afterwards kind of explain it. Well, it's oh, well, for the dummies out there, this is what happened. Like, yeah. you, you didn't need to do that. You showed me. Yeah. That is the medium of film. 
show, don't tell. Yeah. <laughs> that's... Well, that's the fun. It's funny that you um, point out that specifically because uh, when I was considering this earlier, uh, it occurred to me that one thing that would absolutely. Now, I haven't seen the remake of The Fuck. Okay. I have neither seen have I. <laughs> Uh, I considered watching it, and then I kind of looked at reviews and went, no, I'm not wasting like three bucks on that. Yeah. See, I admit that I am curious about it, but I'm not so curious that I'm actually going to, you know, go through it without at least, you know, one or two other people sharing the experience with me so I don't feel like my time's completely wasted. You know what I mean? But, uh, But all of that being said, it seems that if the fog were remade now one of the things that would absolutely be in the movie because it has to be there is the actual visuals of the betrayal negotiating the contract you know seeing these guys fall into their watery death and all of this sort of stuff you You see i don't need that yeah and that's my point is that this movie proves that it's absolutely unnecessary but in the current mentality of filmmaking, that scene is absolutely necessary. And it would have to be in there in some sort of visual flashback in some way to help emphasize, like probably during the old man's ghost story. You know what I mean? So yeah. As he's talking and we look into the fire and the fire is a transition back. It, it would have been a guys, you know? visually silent yeah sequence with him narrating over and yeah. uh, basically what happened yeah exactly yeah and so i don't need all that shit yeah mm-hmm. and that's what i love about kind of older movies like this is they get in and out 90 minutes they had to stretch this movie because it was only 80 minutes so they had to add some shit mm-hmm. yeah and that's what I, I and the beauty of it is is even though they had to add some shit it's a beautiful movie yeah still paced well yeah still works Absolutely. There's not a moment where you're watching the movie going, Oh, fuck. Okay, guys. I get it. Move it on. You know what I mean? Or, worse yet, you go, Oh, that's just the director. Jagging off. Yeah. Yeah. Doing whatever the fuck they want to do right now. And that's that's something that I kind of have against modern cinema. Like, Ari Aster, Hereditary, Midsummer, Like, dude. Fucking rapid. I don't need you to tell me everything. I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah, I wonder sometimes if... that That's um, just my personal vengeance against Ari Aster because his movies suck. We'll, we'll do, yeah, get into I've that never, later. Um, I've never... I mean, the whole concept of, um, you know, uh, going out to the... The, what is that? Hippie commune or whatever it is where um, this woman who's all upset goes out there. With her boyfriend and all of that. Isn't that the Ari Aster movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Midsummer. Midsummer. right. Yeah. He yeah. made it over two and a half hour Wicker Man. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I see that trailer and I go, oh, this is a filmmaker who really was obsessive about a particular type of movie and had an opportunity to pretend to make his own movie, but he's not that creative, so this is what we get is a two and a half hour Wicker Man. You want a better version of The Wicker Man? Hmm. Have you seen Apostle? No. By Gareth Evans? No. Who also Hmm. directed The Raid, Redemption, Raid 2. Really? Okay. Have you seen those flicks? Oh, yeah. Those, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gareth Evans, uh, he made 
a wicker wicker man-esque movie but what's it called the apostle the apostle yeah we uh we did an episode about it with uh ac slade from uh murder dolls and dope and a bunch of other bands but uh that's what happens when you put a kind of tired idea into the hands of a very good director Mm. Mm -hmm. which is directly correlates to the fog yes it's kind of a tired idea but you put it in the hands of a good director exactly and the thing i love about the fog too is that it's not like okay i don't want to say this halloween is a very serious movie Mm -hmm. takes itself very seriously yeah the fog is it's fun Mm. i think like yeah there's there's serious moments to it but i don't know i just i find it fun it's like that 90 or not 90s because it was made in 1980 but like right it's it's just got a fun aspect to it well there's something about the camaraderie of the people in the town because there's almost this familiarity that you're able to observe and kind of be brought in with you know yeah and um and it does work i think more so with the fog because again with halloween you're more focused on this um this unstoppable force that's uh focused on this this one individual and uh her friends so you know again like with um with the fog the body count has been announced six people will die yeah so the main question becomes really who are those six people you know because in a town that's a hundred years old a lot of these people are uh children of yeah you know so it could be could be anybody you know, and that's kind of the the who done it aspect of it that you were talking about before. You know, uh, the, the kind of um, murder mystery I think sort of angle that plays in with the ghost story on top of it, and you just have um, something that starts to feel familiar but still very unique. You know, yeah, especially the way it's. Again, the way it's shot, I know I keep talking about this, but all practical effects, the way they did the lights with the fog and um, the shapes within the fog and taking advantage of jump scares of uh, people just coming out of the fog to grab people and pull pull the victim in, you know? Oh, and the, like that. the false jump scare where Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee are in the seagrass mm. and the like closet kind of thing falls open yeah and then moments later the body falls out of the walls yeah uh-huh. yeah yeah nice little uh i mean it gets you calm and then it smacks you you know but it's never so severe it's not like you know these torture movies where they're like oh look at this incision into the arm and let's let's watch all of this blood and you know meat and everything yeah that's not what horror is about yeah to me that's that's just you know being deliberately revolting and while i can appreciate a practical effect it's not what i'm into not at all you know so anyway seeing the classics are always always better as far as i'm concerned 
Alright, Brad. Any final thoughts on The Fog? Um, well, I think we covered quite a bit of it. Uh, I just think as an early example of the director's work, it's remarkable. And if nobody, if, if you haven't seen it, you need to see it. I guess that's all that needs to be said. Yeah, and I... I think it's kind of almost universally known. This this is seen as one of the low points in John Carpenter's early career, and I don't get it. But yeah, I no, I completely agree with you. Go watch The Fog. It's it's a great time, and it's a very very good movie. Yeah, yeah. For what it is, it's a very simple story, simply told. Uh, it's more of a visual ride than it is anything else. It's moody. It's atmospheric. So you're not going to see a lot of, you know, uh, jump cuts and dead bodies and, uh, you know, action sequences with massive explosions. Not to say that there isn't a lot of stuff in there that's worthwhile and really uh, helps it live up to uh, its place as a horror classic. Very well said, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. All yeah, right. I love John Carpenter. Check him out. B before we get out of here, what have you got to plug, Brad? Oh, okay. So uh, I have an original radio play called Vice vs. Vampires. The badge meets the bite. It's bitchin'. <laughs> As I was explaining to Brad before this, I... And it's not a exact one to one, but mm. this felt like heat meets blade, <laughs> and it rules. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, man. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, it's available. Uh, the website is mountainfiremedia.com. Uh, there is a vice versus vampires.com URL. Uh, sometimes it works for people. Sometimes it doesn't. So. Uh, just go to the mountainfiremedia.com address and you'll be able to, right from the main page, get to the radio play. Yep, and I will put the link in the show notes as well as the YouTube link. Yes, there is a uh, read-along with the radio play sort of video presentation where uh, it's in four parts, but you will be able to hear the entire radio play. And as part of the visual presentation, you'll be able to read along with the script so you can see um, not only what made it to the audio performance, but what didn't make it to the audio performance. And maybe that'll fill in a few gaps for you with some questions. So, and yeah. You, his website's... Full of cool shit. <laughs> Thank Just, you. No, seriously, go check it out. Brad does great work. Like I'm, I'm gonna watch more of it after we're done with this. To be honest with you. Yeah. So um, another thing I should mention before uh, I forget, though, is that in June, uh, Vice versus Vampires and a number of other uh, original radio play and podcast material are going to be hit. Uh, Amazon, Spotify, iTunes, and all of that. So pretty soon we're going to be public on whatever your favorite listening channel is. So you'll be able to dial us in. Hell yes! <laughs> I am down. Um, Let's see, you can go check us out, Horror Vomit on everything. We got a Facebook group, we got an Instagram page. 
we have a Patreon. Go oh, check that's that. Cool. Yeah. It's so like, it's horrorvomit.com is your main website? No. <laughs> okay, what's your main I, website? Uh, we don't have one. <laughs> oh, Chris. Oh. All right. But okay, so I'm sorry. But you are on Facebook and you're on Patreon. Yep, and we have an Instagram page too. Of course, Instagram. Yeah. Okay, good. And also, just personally speaking, if you want to go see my dick, you can go check out my OnlyFans. That's go to OnlyFans.com and search for Doctor Search for Doctor Pissface. That's D R dash P I S S F A C E. Yeah. You will not be able to see my dick, though. There will be no crossing of the streams. I'm sorry. We'll see where the night goes. <laughs> no promises. It'll be mostly Brad's dick after this. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Should we get the fuck out of here? Yeah, roll the dice. All Let's right. go. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. You can see